This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. When interior designer Jana Rosenblatt had an 80-foot tree fall on her house, she saw the opportunity to create the customized home of her dreams. From Disaster to Dream Home provides you with the information and resources Jana wished she had during her rebuilding process. Now she's sharing with you the expertise of leading architects and home builders and the newest products and materials on the market. Here's your host, Jana Rosenblatt. I'm so excited to be speaking with Allison Solar about the process of designing your dream kitchen today. If you've been following along with the progress of the imaginary house we are building this year, this is the month we are laying out the details of plumbing, electrical, and structure under the house and pouring the foundation. During the building process, it is the month during the foundation stage that gives us the time to lead our clients through the process of designing their kitchens, bathrooms, and cabinetry plans. There are indications of the placement of the kitchen and bathroom details on the plans from the architect, but it is the homeowner and interior designer that will work together to make the myriad of decisions that will go into the final design and build. To help us through the process of kitchen design layout and workflow, I've invited kitchen and bath designer Allison Solar to join us today. I've been a follower of Allison's KBDG Kitchen and Bath Designer Group on Facebook. We both have a philosophy of sharing our knowledge with up and coming designers and learning from each other is uh, being the key to success. As a designer of kitchens and baths for almost 30 years, Allison has began to build her knowledge in the field as a team member at two national home improvement centers, and then as the lead designer and project manager at a local New York independent luxury kitchen and bath showroom. She founded Solar Designs in 2002 to continue working closely with her clients to develop creative and functional kitchen and baths for new construction and renovated homes. In recent years, Allison has developed a coaching and training program she calls KBDA, Kitchen and Bath Design Academy, to train other interior designers to become proficient in the field. Hi, Allison, welcome. Hey, Jenna, how are you? I'm great, thank you, this is so fun. Um, Imagine that we've just um, determined the ground plan and traffic pattern of our kitchen to secure the appliances prior to the foundation being poured in our house. So we now know that the position of our major plumbing and electrical is fully determined. We probably have a month or so until the framing is done and then two to three months additional for drywall. Once the drywall is in and the cabinetry will not be far behind. So this is the time to nail down the design. We have just walked into your showroom with our ground plans. Where do we begin? Well, What I would do in a showroom is I would walk you around to the space and show you what I have just to try and get an idea of the things that the customer likes. Like, what do you like? What colors do you look at? And I would ask a few questions like, when are you looking to do your project? How many places have you looked at yet? Um, How long have you been looking? Because all of these are qualifying questions to, for a designer to ask the client, especially with someone who's a cold call, like a walk-in, you really want to show them what you have and say, listen, this is what we do. Look at me, look what I have, blah, blah, blah. They get to know you in person. But then you have to interview them because you want to know where is the project? Is it within your area of doing work within your neighborhood. Many times people come into one showroom, but they are just looking. So you want to know how far along that client has been looking. Are they tire kicking or are they ready to commit? So if they're tire kicking, it Uh can be a much more uh, open 
kind of basic con uh, conversation. But uh -huh. if they were really ready to start determining and they're ready, then it's a serious conversation of getting their wants and needs and finding out what their, their time frame is. And so uh, how do you begin to lead your client to determine the needed features and traffic patterns of their dream kitchen? Typically during a consultation in what, after the showroom visit, if they want to work with me, I would sit down and do a interview of questions. I have questions regarding how they use the space because even though the space has X amount of inches and X amount of feet, what goes into the kitchen is based on the client's intake. Basically, how do they cook? How do they live? Do they entertain? Do they have a multi-generational family? Any special needs? What kind of cooking do they do? Who's cooking? When do they cook? All of the, what appliances do they want? What appliances do they want to keep? Or, you know, some people, they have a wish list of appliances, but you can't fit everything in there because you take that list of all the things that they want, like uh, they have storage for small appliances, they have a lot of trays, they do a lot of baking. So you take all of the items that the customer wants to store and then you go by laying out the kitchen plan based on the customer's way of living. It's not necessarily a basic, well, the refrigerator goes here and the dishwasher goes there mm -hmm. and whatever. You have to keep in mind your guidelines, but you also have to take into consideration the client's wants and needs, physical, uh, the things that they have uh, are, and health issues, lighting issues. The whole thing comes together as a package. Uh, how is it different on a project with people who really enjoy cooking and those that are not cooks, but do need a kitchen? People who are not cooks are not as, they don't need as much storage. Uh -huh. so someone who doesn't cook doesn't have Except a lot for of stuff. Tupperware for leftovers. Tupperware for leftovers. And then right. somebody would tell me they need Tupperware leftovers you know, Tupperware drawer, I make sure I get a deep drawer. Yeah. yeah so exactly. I know that person eats out a lot. Maybe they have paper napkin, paper plates, paper this, paper that. So you really just gear to what's going into. So it's really the function of the kitchen that comes first. Uh -huh. Like what's happening, what's going in it. Somebody who doesn't have a lot going on, they don't really like to cook. Doesn't mean they don't want to have all the fancy appliances. Doesn't right. mean that, you know, I've done $200,000 kitchens for people that don't even cook uh -huh. uh, and don't barely even live there. They just want yeah. those yeah. frills. Yeah. So I have too. I, I always wish that I could go and cook in their kitchen <laughs> or bring my husband even better to cook in their kitchen. My husband does most of the cooking. I yeah. cook, I cook occasionally, but you'll be surprised how many husbands cook. And you know, when you interview a man about their cooking, they all, so many of them put their arms in the, that protective mode, like they hug, tug their arms and they like, no, it doesn't really matter. But uh -huh. Uh -huh. when you when you talk and you can get them to, to you have to kind of like, we're psychologists and we have to get into their head. Yeah, it's we, true. We have, to, yeah. we have to trick them into saying what we want them to say or bring it out of them. We're master manipulators designers because we are manipulating you to really yep, tell yep. us because so many people yeah. don't want to tell you i know and then we're psychologists and marriage counselors marriage yeah. counselors yep. psychologists i remember one client i had and he was like do you who he does the cook do you have any knives do you have any he was there with his hands full finally when i started saying he's like oh no i do i have professional knives i'm gonna need a place for that all right. right. You didn't Thank want to you. tell me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, over the years with experience, you kind of know the questions to ask yeah. the customers and um, get to know them. So someone who's who cooks a lot, 
and someone who doesn't cook a lot, there's not much of a difference. In the conversation? Yeah, the conversation is yeah. more, I think that the conversation is more detailed when it comes to someone that cooks a lot. Uh -huh. Someone that cooks a lot or bakes a lot spends more time in the kitchen. Yeah. They're yeah. going to have more wants and needs. Yeah, and do you find that they come with a more prepared list? No. Oh, no one does, or no or one do does. some. <laughs> no one does. <laughs> Nobody comes yeah. with a list. Okay. They don't. They just, all they know is they want this color. They want that kind of door. Uh -huh. And they like so-and-so's kitchen. They like the way that one looks in the magazine. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, of course, if you're working on a renovation, you can go to their existing kitchen and talk about the pros and cons. When you're working on a new home construction where people already are having a very hard time visualizing anything, it's really abstract. And it would be useful if people thought about it a little while and and you know did come in with a list but that's what our job is i guess just to lead yeah them. i'm wondering now with all of the social media and all of these groups and everything else the sharing that's going on if the public isn't getting more uh educated on what their homework yeah. is well, what they need to do exactly i mean that's one of the reasons that i'm doing the podcast is because you know, I'm working with people who never planned on building a new house in their life. They've lost their homes to disaster and and they don't know what to do. They are absolutely clueless. It's not something that, you know, if you're we're always planning to build a new house, then you have an excitement about it. You've been dreaming about your dream kitchen. But these people have not been doing that. And and I really want something that people can look back to and and uh, rely on for, you know, good information on just how they're supposed to proceed. Um, now, do you usually take part in the appliance selections or is that, do they come to you with their appliance list or do you have to send them off to get that done? How involved are you? Um, I, I say that, uh, the designer needs to be very involved with the appliance choices because the clients don't necessarily know what will and what will not fit in the space. So we have to guide them to what's going on in the space, take their, their desire list. Um, what do I want? I want a warming drawer. I want a microwave. I want a double oven. I want this. Does it all fit in that space? Mm -hmm. Do those appliances work well for your lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Is that really the best bang for your buck? And the homeowners to be honest, don't know all of the fabulous appliances that are out there. And how to build the lap. Yeah. Until they start to go. And then they're yeah. overwhelmed. Yeah. They're overwhelmed. That's the basic thing with the kitchens and bathrooms. It, they're overwhelmed. And so many people don't realize the importance of using a professional designer to help them. It makes the time go so much faster. The selections go so much easier. The whole process is more enjoyable than if you don't use a professional and you just go wandering around and listening to this store, that store, this store, that store. So mm -hmm. working with a designer, I really say it's a, it's a whole package. It's the kitchen cabinets, but it's the layout, but it's the appliances. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things with equal weight and equal importance. Um, and what are your most uh, important features when you're that you include in the kitchen for people who really cook or people maybe who are specifically bakers? What are your thoughts? Someone who does a lot of cooking and a lot of entertaining, I think definitely need the warming drawer because mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll be preparing food ahead of time and having it in, in a warming drawer is really a great appliance for somebody that cooks like that. Mm -hmm. You might have people who come in because you don't want to heat your food up in a microwave or a speed oven. You want to just keep it at that steady warming drawer. For someone that cooks a lot, that warming drawer is really important. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure they have a good cooking surface um, that they're going to get the right BTUs for their cooking style. Uh, wok cooking is now the, the BTUs meaning um, the power in the range or your or your hood. The hood is rated in CFM, right, right, which right. is cubic feet per minute. Yeah. Your range is rated in BTUs, which is your mm -hmm. British thermal unit, 
and the BTUs are the British thermal unit of the heat generated by the burners. Uh-huh. Like a wok cooking needs a high BTU burner, right. like a 22, 24,000 BTU burner. So if you have that kind of a burner hit, producing that much heat, the cubic feet per minute of the hood correlates to the range and the range hood. So mm-hmm. they kind of like go together so that you're es- um, escaping the, the heat produced from that cooking surface. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think so, the hood is also a really important factor for people who really do cook. And I ask a lot of questions about what kinds of foods they cook and how they process it. My husband did something interesting the other night. He was using a wok and he turned the grill, the grill, the ironwork of the um, range over upside down to balance his wok. So it was lowered down into the flame for more intense heat. I have to say, I never saw him do that before, but it was fascinating. Um, and so then what are your, um, your must-haves for uh, kitchens when you know the people are entertainers? I didn't sit for the baking one. I'm going to get back to the baking one. Oh, yeah. One. Go back to What's baking. Really, yeah. Really, when people bake, they have a lot of trays. Of yes. Cookie sheets, baking pans. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, they have that big KitchenAid mixer. Oh, yes. We have that. So, so a, a nice cabinet for that is, uh, you know, you, to have it in a cabinet with the pullout that it pops up right there. At the I was going to ask you about that. Um, do, have you had success with that pullout? I've done it a couple of times. Every time I've done it, I have people love it. Yeah. So let's explain that more clearly. This is actually a cabinet where you open the door and you pull out a shelf and it literally pops up to counter space, counter height. So it's, right. you don't have to lift and move around this, you know, those heavy mixers and there it is. Right. And yeah. it's an entire cabinet. Yeah that is devoted to nothing but the mixer lift up. And maybe you'll have a little room underneath it at the very, very bottom. Right, for the attachment. And a little something in there yeah. if you wanted to put. But to, for the most part, it's a dedicated cabinet. And it really only works well when someone has a larger kitchen and they have 18 inches to uh, dedicate to just one cabinet for a mixer lift up. But I've done it in small places for people who do a major amount of baking, and she absolutely loved it. Yeah, and yeah, she was yeah. sorry she didn't include it in her new kitchen. Yeah. It's all a matter of your budget, because yeah. that mixer yeah. lift-up cabinet can add another eight hundred dollars. Yeah, but it's also a balance between budget. The thing that's interesting is that space. You know, you would think space would become an issue with a luxury item like that. But actually, depending on what you are going to use, you may not need another thing that everyone else has in their kitchens that, you know, it's about personalizing it and customizing it. That makes it a really dream kitchen. You have to customize it. And I always tell people, don't don't do for the next person. Don't do for the people coming in. Don't do for resale. Yeah, because nobody's going to like exactly what you like. It's Uh no to every kitchen I've ever done has been personalized. Yeah. So just do what you like, live in the moment, get what you like. There's a kitchen in your house. There's new appliances in your house. You're still going to sell your house mm-hmm. <laughs> or your apartment. The resale is still there, uh-huh. but just get what really makes you happy. Yeah. And yep. what you Especially need. today, the market is yeah. so hot. all right so let's talk about those entertainers oh the entertainers okay what does that mean to me right away lots of extra platters and bowls and spat like spoons for serving um maybe they have sternos um they're gonna need storage for all of their entertainment items usually Mm -hmm. that's a lot of platters so i might make sure I have a tray base or some tray storage in a cabinet for them. Um, I'll make sure that they have, perhaps even if there's room enough, I can dedicate a whole center just to their entertainment air things. Yeah. Like this whole cabinet yeah. is full of your entertainment things, all yeah. your platters, all your spoons, all your serving knives, 
well, everything you need is right here. I mean, mm -hmm. I've done that with people who have an outdoor kitchen dedicated an outdoor outdoor cabinet, uh, people who have Passover or another religious holiday, don't want to bring everything up and down the basement. I dedicate right. the whole entire right. area for that. So if you work with a professional, they're really going to think about personalizing your space much mm -hmm. more than you would do it without. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just had my, um, my stepson called me and he's doing his kitchen with his mother. And I, he, they like, I don't know, they don't want to so many people don't want help. I know. You know what? It makes me, I am never so happy as when someone that is close to me or especially related calls me to talk about their kitchen plan, even if they're in another part of the country and they're working with someone else, if they send me the plan, I'll at least just add my two cents worth because every amount of thinking about it is going to improve the design. And I don't want to go to be a guest in your house and, have, and see the things you could have done that you didn't know to do. It makes me crazy. Yes. And I look at the kitchen that he showed me and it's all across the wall and there's a stove underneath the window. And I was like, well, you can't do that. And I was like, who did this kitchen? And then um, his mother's going, well, I did it. And I'm like, well, oh, that's why it looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was no, a plan. I mean, that's their plan. I'm like, well, whoever yeah. put, and that's my other thing to go to for designers as well as homeowners, you need to make sure you're going to somebody who is a professional because the person who threw that in the computer and yeah. made it lay out like that doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, some builders uh, and contractors are, are smarter than others, but they're, they don't have the time to ask you the amount of questions to really seek out what your, you know, really good answers are going to be for what you need. So um, they can, you know, help keep you out of, you know, <clears throat> make sure that you're to code, but they're not going to be able to help you realize your, you know, your biggest dreams. No. So they when you think working... they think differently than a contractor. Yes, exactly. That's exactly They're right. They're going to think about walls and not, it's like an architect. They don't think about what's going in the space either. They just, you know I what? Know. Yeah. An, a contractor <clears throat> yeah. is a contractor. An architect is an architect and a designer is a designer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that my listeners will probably have heard me say this a few times in my, in my, career online, uh, that an architect designs from the inside out, an interior designer designs from the ins from, uh, I'm sorry, from the outside in, an interior designer designs from the inside out, including what's inside the people and brings it out. So that is my Absolutely. philosophy comment for the day. So when you're working with a client who has not yet um, locked into the floor plan, how do you begin to guide them through the creation of the plan? Is there a view to, you know, to focus on? Um, is there a great room where parents will need to keep their eyes on the kids? Um, islands, peninsulas, um, do you need an eat-in kitchen or a, a bar on your island? What are your, um, what's your process for helping them realize those choices? First, it would be through the intake and I get a sense of what they're looking for. And then the, the floor plan and everything has nothing to do with the color. It has nothing to do with the door style. It has nothing to do with the wood species, nothing except space planning. And when you're dealing with a customer and as a professional, when I look at a floor plan, I can come up with something relatively quickly because with 30 years of experience, I'm looking at floor plans all day long in, in decades worth of looking at floor plans. So you're going to look at the floor plan and the customer might say, I want a peninsula. I want, I want a bar. I want this. I want that. And you say, well, give me all your things that you want and let me see how I can fit it in there. Uh -huh. So then as a designer, the customer leaves, I take all their information and I start to look at their floor plan. Uh-huh. I might put it in my computer to get it to my scale because uh -huh. blueprints are usually in quarter inch scale uh -huh. and designers work in half inch scale primarily uh, for kitchens. And we also use inches where architects use feet. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to translate those uh, blueprints into inches and look at the floor plan, decide based on our experience and what the client wants. Oh, they said they want a peninsula. And then I'll look at it and I'll go, you know what? I'll show them what it looks like, but I think it could look better. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the, a designer is always going to come come and one-up you because that's what we do. Yeah, 
So they're going to say, well, well, you said this, but how about that? Right. And yeah. when, after the first conversation with a client and you, you do the intake, you do all their information, they leave, then you do your magic, you come back. And for me, I happen to be able to do things by hand and I'm rather yeah. quick to my sketching. I can sketch and scale mm -hmm. because we didn't have the programs to really like now the the renderings and all those renderings are way yeah. more advanced than when they started. Mm -hmm. So when I started and I can do a quick rendering by pencil to scale and give them an idea of what it's going to look like. And as soon as they see whether it's a, a little picture, yeah. whether it's a black and white, a hand drawn, it doesn't matter. To, to give them the first idea of the different layouts, it would totally be very sketchy, yeah. very um, loose. And we would meet back and I would say, well, let's look at the space now mm -hmm. that I've put it together. Mm -hmm. And then they might choose, well, I don't really like this. I don't like that. Or I didn't even think about that. And from there, the plan morphs. So a good designer is going to do two floor plans, maybe, uh -huh. maybe three, because three, there's yeah. only so much you could do. And then you're going to pick which one you like, yeah. and we're going to fine tune it. So then it yeah. all yeah. gets fine tuned. It's like starting out with that piece of clay, a piece of clay right there that looks like a ball. <laughs> and we start to shape it a little bit. And then we really start to fine tune the vision. Mm -hmm. So that's after like three or four meetings, you really start to get down and go uh -huh. down and dirty and lock yeah, it in. But I, I love that you said that um, the first thing you do is you draw what they asked for. So that then you can determine if that works or not works. And I think that's really important to show the client that that you heard them yes. and that, you, you, that you're acknowledging what they did. And then you take it to the next step and improve upon it. And, so if, that, it doesn't, and if it doesn't work. Yeah, you I'll, can demonstrate it. Yeah, I'll explain yeah. to them and show yeah. them, well, this doesn't give enough clearance. This isn't enough. Exactly. Space. You need more walkthrough. Walk you don't get as much storage. I'll explain to them the cons of yeah. one plan versus another. Yeah, but at the exactly. end of the day, the ultimate decision is the client's. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I found personally that an island in my kitchen is literally life-changing. Uh, let's talk about the island. Is there a minimum size? Well, I would think any kind of an island would need to be a minimum of three feet wide and 24 inches deep for a cabinet, but that would be like really, really small. Uh huh. One thing I say about an island is you need to have an appliance or something in it. You need to have a reason to go to the island, like a sink or a faucet, I mean, a, an undercounter refrigerator or um, it needs something on it. Otherwise uh -huh. it's just a slab that sits there and you're never gonna, you're not gonna go by your cooking and all take all of your, your vegetables and turn around and cut everything over there when you still have a nice countertop right next to you. So yeah. uh -huh. the less moving, the better, but definitely an island it doesn't necessarily have to have seating on it, but right. you should right. definitely have an appliance in it of some kind, the microwave mm -hmm. underneath it, cabin, you know, plenty of storage, but definitely you utilize it for some kind of- Yeah, it needs a, an initial reason to be. So exactly. it's not just a traffic uh, blocker. So it's, you know, my, my thoughts are, in, um, is there a sink in it? Is it the primary sink or is it um, a secondary sink for hand washing for, you know, religious Jews or for, um, you know, uh, beverages and things like that for the kids to be able to access it? Is there filtered water in it? Um, is there a disposal? So, I mean, if you're looking to make a second cooking area because you have two cooks in the house um, or uh, and then also there could be a cooktop. I mean, there could be. Um, and if you do a cooktop in an island, how do you feel about that? And, and what are your range hood options? I'm not a fan of the cooktop in an island or the oven in an island because 
Um, this is a fireman's daughter we're talking about. And oh, it's a fire hazard. It's uh -huh. a fire hazard because you'll hear people when the cooktop is off, people will kind of just put things all over that island counter. It becomes a landing space. If it doesn't have it, so so people, even though it has a range on it, a cooktop, they'll they could maybe put their coat down or put a bag down or so. And you need to have nine inches behind you. Uh -huh. You have to have space behind you for the the grease, the splatter, um, and the hoods, uh, downdraft hood, which is a hood that you would put so you don't have a big hood over the island are not as sufficient, uh, efficient as a over the range hood. And then yeah, when you have yeah. them over the range, they're a little bit awkward. They kind of come down in the middle of the room um, or a middle of the space. Some people like it, some people don't. Then you have that one uh, vent that goes way up high. It can be like eight feet up, nine feet up. And it's like flush into the ceiling. I, I wonder how, efficient that is way up there uh -huh. at, yeah because when you think about the inches above the cooktop a typical hood is 36 inches above a cooktop 30 to 36 so if i have 30 to 36 and i've got another two feet it's up another two feet every every bit it it loses its exhaust mm -hmm. so i'm not a big fan of a cooktop on an island mm -hmm. but if a customer wants it I'll tell them all the things yeah. I like and I, what I don't like and mm -hmm. then let them know what the pros and what the cons are. And if they want it, I will give it to them mm -hmm. because it's their space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on a few projects where there's been a, a good enough reason to do it, but it is always um, not really ever my first choice. No. Uh, and if I do it, there better be either a really great, you know, pop-up um, uh, hood Mm -hmm. or it's an opportunity for that hood to be very pretty. It very better, better be a really nice hood. Yeah. So there's I'm going to see it. There are some beautiful contemporary hoods. I think now the trend is um, that box hood that just looks like a big square rectangle box uh -huh. thing. That's the new trend. And everything is a trend, you know. It's gonna come and go. It's, it's true. It's all gonna come and go. It's true, which is why, you know, I, I know I always say, and I think you said this earlier, you have to like it. It has to be something you like because if you like it, it won't it won't go in or out of fashion. Absolutely. Um, so in the 1940s, when there was um, one primary cook in the kitchen and the concept of the work train triangle was developed between the refrigerator, the cooktop, and the sink. Um, that was the like considered the primary design for a kitchen. What are your feelings about the work triangle? The work triangle was actually invented and introduced in the 40s and the 50s to sell more kitchens. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> it was a marketing ploy to tell people they needed to redo their kitchens because the triangle was the correct way to do it. Uh-huh. So it, you know, they were trying to sell all their fancy appliances and um, just make the kitchen more because the, the kitchen, how it started was a, a, a hole in the ceiling and fire in the floor. So when you look at the history of the kitchen, it was always in the back of the house, in the back of the room, in the basement, far away from everybody. So with the advancement of all our appliances and the colors, when you look at those 40s and 50s, you get the pink stove, the pink, you know, it starts to become more of a room in the house mm -hmm. and it becomes more uh, pleasant to mm -hmm. look at. And, and more of an entertainment hub. And well, no matter, I, everybody's going to be in the kitchen. Everybody. Yes, no matter, right, right, and exactly. It, I'm sure, sure 3,000 years ago, they were all huddled around the, around the stove. Yeah, <laughs> or know? the campfire. The campfire. It's yeah. just, it's the nature of, of people. We, I, uh -huh. It doesn't matter. You could have a postage stamp of a kitchen and everybody from your party is in the kitchen. 
I don't know if it's our mentality of food and and the the warmth we feel of cooking, but um, the triangle basically doesn't always work in today's kitchen. Uh -huh. We have to modify that triangle because it's no longer just a sink, a stove, and a refrigerator. Yeah, that's exactly and right. And it's yeah. no longer just one refrigerator. It could be a refrigerator and refrigerator drawers. It could be a warming mm -hmm. drawer. We've got speed ovens, microwave ovens, um, the the drawer, microwave drawers, wall ovens, double ovens. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not only just one primary cook anymore. I mean, now it's you know uh, both of the primary you know couple um, are are might be cooks of different kinds, and they're going to need their own stations. And you know, mm -hmm. are there teenagers who are all into cooking and into you know are the the whole family of foodies or multi generational, as you said? I mean, does you know is grandma going to cook, you know, at the same time as other things going on in the kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. So I personally kind of work in four zones uh, and I keep those in mind in my designs. There's food preparation, whether it be right, for one zones. person or two, right. baking and cooking, the actual, you know, um, cooking instruments, storage and pantry, and then entertainment, so supplies, serving, beverage and wine refrigeration and things like that. Um, and, and those are the zones I sort of talk to my clients through to kind of get, make sure that their needs are really met. Um, what are the, the primary zones or areas that you are um, considering? Well, when I take into my zones, I have the primary, the secondary and the tertiary. Uh -huh. So I would say, where is the primary things happening? So those primary spaces, I would make sure that they're well lit, they have easy access and they're in a proper location. So the secondary, so like your, the first one would be like food, cooking your food and washing up the dishes. Mm -hmm. So then the secondary could be kind of like where you're chopping up your food or um, the under counter lighting for that. So, and then the third is like what you don't really use all that much. So you could say the third zone is the entertainment zone, which is only mm -hmm. three times a month, uh, three storage. times a year. Yeah. So I think of it in the zones of what you're going to use most of the time, where you're going to be the maximum amount of time, and then what is the least amount of use. So the, exactly. the zone, the triangle could be, it, it, it includes multiple things. I don't know. I don't agree with the triangle anymore. I think yeah. it's antiquated. Yeah. Yeah. There's too many appliances right now. And also the kitchens today are large. Mm -hmm. We're seeing these expanse, huge kitchens. Yeah, yeah, where it's part of the great, where it's a corner of a great room. It's, you know, or half of the great room. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and what separates them is not a wall and a door, but an island or a peninsula. Exactly. So it's and then I know, space. I know like with my sister, she has this big, long, must be 20, 25 feet, maybe even longer. Mm, and there lovely. was really only little, there was one place to put the refrigerator because of where her windows were. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it was kind of far away. And I said, you know what? And also it was too far for the sink. So I told my brother-in-law who does all the cooking, I said, I don't care what you say. I was like, you need a sink in the island. He goes, I don't need a sink in the island and I don't need a warming drawer. I said, you need a warming drawer and you need an, a sink in the island. They love the sink in the island, and yeah. he treasures his warming drawer. Yeah, my um, <laughs> my sink is in is my in in my island, uh, which means that I get to face the activity in my house because my my house is not large, but everything happens in you know one room pretty much. So I get to face everything, and I, I never feel like I'm out of the loop. I'm part mm -hmm. of the party, whatever's going on, even if it's just you know two of us, or if I'm cooking alone. Um, it's just it's amazing. So that leads us to, um, I'm itching to share some of my design rules that I find essential in kitchen designs. After I do that, I want you to, to uh, do the same thing. So bear with me for a minute, because I'm just going to read through this list of things I always want people to remember. And feel free to disagree, but you might not. Okay, <laughs> first, the cooktop and the range require a minimum of 18 inches on each side. More is better, but less is really inconceivable to me. 
there are there needs to be a countertop surface within a single body turn of the primary pantry as well as the refrigerator for unpacking groceries. You can you need to be able to walk in, put your stuff down, and then turn to put it away. So it doesn't have to be part of the triangle, but those things have to relate. A pullout double trash or a trash compactor, which is becoming more prevalent again in my in my clients' worlds, um, must be within the arm's length of the sink with a small drawer above it to hold knives. If the kitchen is small, I add a pullout to the, uh, for the trash under the sink. So you can stand on one side of the sink, have the sink there, turn and cut your vegetables right over the trash. I have that. It is very important to me. The dishwasher must also be sink adjacent, of course, but Say it that, also has to be, yeah. The what? The what? what the dishwasher. Ah, dishwasher. Yeah. So when you're using the dishwasher and you're unloading it, my goal is to be able to turn and reach where you're putting everything away. So rather than have um, the silverware drawer near where your table is, where you're going to use it near the table, I want it to be right near in, in arm's reach of the dishwasher, as well as my primary glassware and my primary plates and dishes so that the, the process of, of unloading the dishwasher takes almost no steps at all. I mean, sometimes it's necessary, but that's the goal is as few steps as possible. The sink should have a, have a minimum of 36 inches on one side of it, but no less than 24 if that's not possible on the end, on the other side of it. So when I try to design an ultimate sink location, it's within a five feet zone. If you, if you don't have that, you work around it as best you can, but um, I have that as exactly what I have in my kitchen and it's completely wonderful and functional. Double ovens are outside of the busiest traffic pattern, which is another where, place where the, the triangle is, um, is old news. I like to get the ovens further away. I don't like to have them opening and closing where people are walking, if I can avoid it. But I also don't want the heat, even though their uh, modern appliances don't give off a lot of heat. I just think they're better, they're rare, they're le used much less than anything else. I kind of set them over on the side. The cook should have the best view possible from the sink because it's the sink where you spend more time in the kitchen. People think it's the stove, it's not, it's the sink. So if, I, if there's a beautiful view and I can turn and have the sink in the island or I have a beautiful window at the sink because that's where the cook should be able to really enjoy the cooking process without looking at a, a flat wall. Then the last one is um, in a home under 1500 square feet, my minimum walkways are 36 inches, but my goal is for walkways in the kitchen to be 42 to 52 inches. So with that in mind, um, what are some of the rules that are things you always keep in mind when you begin the design process? Walkways between two countertops that are perpendicular to each other are supposed to be 42 to 48 inches mm -hmm. separate from each other. Right. The space next to a stove, the, the minimum recommended landing space is 15 inches on one side and 15 inches on the other side. The same goes for a wall oven, a pantry, a microwave. If there's a microwave cabinet that comes down, a wall oven that comes down, you have to have landing space on the left and you should or it should be a minimum of 15 inches, 24 inches is recommended. But, um, and the walkway, a walkway in a kitchen for 36 inches really only allows one person yeah. for mm -hmm. passing. Mm -hmm. So, cause you have to realize in interior design, people take up two feet, 24 inches. Mm -hmm. When you're allocating space for people at a table, anywhere, you're allowing 24 inches. So if you want two people to pass by, you would need 24 inches. On an island, if you have- Oh, 48. What I say? Or two, 24. So 24 oh, each. So that would be four, yeah, 48. Yeah, I need Perfect. 48 yeah. inches for two people. To yep, exactly. Away. Right. And also when in an island, uh, when you have anything between the two, an island or anywhere, you want it to be 48 inches 
but you can push it sometimes to 54 and sometimes you could push it, push it to 42, but you want to try and stay to that 48 to make it comfortable. The only way where I get 36 inches between two countertops is typically in a Manhattan galley kitchen. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then I'm mm -hmm. going to get that tight 36 inches, which makes it really, really tight. Right. The, um, so the pantry you do have to think about coming in the house and putting away your groceries and what you're putting into the pantry. So you wanna make sure that you have landing space, that landing space. And again, that landing space has to be within 48 inches of the pantry. So if you have a pantry there and there's no countertop to the left or the right, you have to have a countertop 48 inches away no more than four feet away so that you can land it there and empty yeah. it that way. Yeah, so yeah. You have to have landing spaces within a cer certain amount of, um... mm -hmm. then you said the pullout trash. A pullout trash is typically always to the left of the sink or the right of the sink. And mm -hmm. it's determined by which way you put the, the dishwasher. Right. The rule of thumb for the dishwasher is, this is the rule of thumb. Um, mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. different for everybody. But it's if you're left-handed, you put the sink on the, the put the dishwasher on the right. If you're right-handed, you put the dishwasher on the left. Don't ask me why. Mm -hmm. I learned this years ago. But some people go, no, I want it on the right. No, yeah. I want it on the right. Yeah. No, I want yeah. it on the right. It's and just personal go, preference. Right. And then I yeah. put it on the right, and then the garbage goes to the left. And they say afterwards, well, I wish you would have done. I wish I would have done the garbage on the left because yeah. it's too far away from my cooktop. I said, well, you were adamant about the dishwasher on the right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A so, lot of it is when the way they grew up, you yeah. know, it's what you're used to. Um, you know, every once in a while we have to change the position of a dishwasher from what someone's used to. And, you know, it only takes a little while to adjust, but it is weird. It's one of those things like what side of the bed you sleep on. Yeah. The most important is when you have a corner sink, Yes, which you is need rare. To have, if you have a corner sink, you have to leave a cabinet. Like there has to be a space and then the dishwasher. You yeah, can't that's put right. the yeah. dishwasher directly next right. to the sink. I've seen it. Because that's where your legs are going to be. You can't stand there. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. You the, have to the, be able to turn. And um, guidelines are a 21 inches on center from the sink base. Uh, from Yeah, from the sink mm -hmm. base. So you have to kind of leave room for that to open up. Yeah, a corner sink is definitely uh, something to consider in only a kitchen with enough space to really handle it well. So in the 1960s through 90s, desk areas were very common in the kitchens. And, um, and now I find that people are more removing them than, you know, than adding them. Um, what are your feelings about the, that sort of obligatory desk area? I think, again, it was a trend. It was a trend mm -hmm. and everybody who has it gets rid of it because they realize they're not sitting. When you think about that desk in the um, kitchen, what are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Usually at the end of the counter and it's looking at a wall. Yeah, who exactly. Really like to do their right. bills and sit at a desk that's facing a wall. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's and if you're you'd rather just go to right to the table. So they're not going to, they might use that for bills or the phone and some storage, but they're really doing their work. Yeah. By the, you know, the I think you just put your finger on it. We used to have landlines. And so there used to be a telephone at that desk with a pad of paper on your pen and, you know, you take, you know, uh, exactly. messages or whatever. And also cookbooks. I mean, there used to be a lot of cookbook storage. And now that's pretty rare that I need to, I mean, the beginning of my career, for sure, I was spending a lot of time figuring out where people were going to put their cookbooks. But now we just look up a recipe online and we just need a computer station or an outlet on our island and we're all set. Yeah, the outlet on the island is code. Yeah, so you mentioned that the outlet in the island is code. And um, that was a question that I wanted to get to because uh, here, I'm, sh I'm sure this is very similar throughout the country, but in California... There are very specific rules about the amount of outlets that you need in your kitchen. Um, that in the backsplash, if you have 12 inches um, or more, uh, anywhere you have 12 inches or more, you need an outlet on this backsplash. And that then if you have a long run of, of counter space, they have to be every 24 inches. And I actually have a funny story about that because 
when we renovated my kitchen because the tree fell on our house, um, we there was one place where there was uh, a wall with a window, to, and then to the right of that is my was my tower um, storage and microwave tower and my refrigerator, my built-in refrigerator. So the place that there could be an outlet on that wall was in a um, a four-inch um, framing of the window, and. I, because I know how hard it would be for the guys to have put um, a outlet in there, I was like, gonna forget it. But the inspector forced us to carve into that uh, case, you know, take off the casing, carve into that four inch structure. But you know what? We use that outlet more than any other outlet in the kitchen. And I, to this day, have more respect for the, the inspector making us do that. So, so then the other thing is that there has to be um, one outlet per nine square feet of countertop on an island. And sometimes I hide them under the counter um, in the seating space or something so that, you know, when you want to use your margarita machine, you can plug it in underneath. But um, what are your rules similar in New York? The, I don't know about the, the space, but as far as the nine square feet, but I know that the outlet has to be uh, tamper resistant. That's one of the, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so even if you have one of those outlet strips, it needs to be tamper resistant, whatever. That's the one requirement, mm-hmm. not necessarily GFI, but uh, the tamper resistant. So you mm-hmm. have to make sure that you get a tamper resistant. Yeah, well, I think we can talk a lot more about um, electrical and lighting when we talk about cabinetry in another episode, but, um, but there, that's a huge part of the, of the kitchen design. Absolutely. And then it's where do I put these outlets? I mean, I've had, I've done amazing, gorgeous backsplashes. And then exactly. you're like, well, how do you, what are you going to, how are you going to hide your back? Yeah. Well, luckily now there are ways to do that, which we can get into. Yeah. Um, so through your 30 year career, how has the design process and, and the design of kitchens changed? What I'm seeing is that there's a lot more interior designers who don't specialize in kitchen and bathroom that are getting involved in kitchen design and bathroom design and picking out materials and specifying products. So in that regard, there's a lot more um, of other professionals coming in and Uh tackling that space. They don't necessarily know the, the same things as kitchen designers. They don't they won't, I mean, I don't know about sofas and, and fabrics. I do because I went to school, but I, I'm not going to start doing it now because it's much more complicated, but getting a sofa, you know, why is there a $500 sofa and why is there a $2,000 sofa? You're going to be able to pick it all apart. I can't do that, but I can do that in a kitchen. So the other thing that's changing, and I feel it's economically driven is when the economy is doing really, really, really well, people want to really embellish and put a lot into the kitchen. Uh-huh. When we go through recession and we go through depression or things like that, everybody wants minimal. It all becomes less and less and less and less. So that's why I see this contemporary sleek Scandinavian mid-century really taking off where Uh there's, you know, not everybody likes that look, but Mm -hmm. that's what you see in all the magazines. You see that in all the magazines, the Scandinavian, the very contemporary, you still have your people that want that very traditional, a glazed, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's that sense of coming back into it. And I really feel that that whole, process of eliminating the upper cabinets was because you know how much money you save yeah, yeah. you know how much crown molding you don't have to do so <laughs> yes feel it's a, it was a budget invention for the budget well you uh-huh. can't afford this kitchen but if i take out all those wall cabinets and just give you some open shelves you'll have you'll be able to afford that sale i'll get that sale but you only got some open shelves you know, yeah, and then you have to wash it. everything before you use it and after. And it has to look pretty. So yeah. I, yes, that's right. You have to have beautiful things. I think it's like, yeah, it's really cool, but how practical is it? So a lot uh-huh. of the things that we see are not practical. They're more just 
you know, somebody's new idea of what we should be doing. Uh -huh. And then everybody copies it. It was like that gray kitchen with the white marble countertop that they started to show like 10, 15 years ago. And everybody was like, I want that. I want that. And all the countertop companies that was before your white, before your white Cambria, before you, all your different whites, your LG, your HiMax, mm -hmm. all those before white was marble. And I remember the customers wanted all that Carrera marble and the, the fabricators would make them sign off and say, because yeah. the mm -hmm. marble is going to stain and etch. You know, I actually wish that more fabricators made them sign off because I'm usually the one that, you know, moves people away from that unless it's just a baking surface or a small, you know, part of a kitchen or you have staff that are going to clean up, you know, as they cook. But most yeah. people don't have that. Or they're okay with it getting scratched. Yeah. I like mm -hmm. that look. Yep. I love the material. Yep. I like that look. Yeah. I'm okay with that. So as long as they're an educated consumer, and our our job as a professional is to educate the consumer, educate them, tell them what's the good material, tell them what's the right thing to do. And it has to be from a attitude of um expressing, telling them what to do because I care. Yeah, mm -hmm. it can't be because I'm going to make more money on that product and, right. I'm gonna, and I can easily get this and I can get that. This other guy doesn't cut like a lot of times, like with the stone tops, they'll go, oh, no, you don't want that quartz material. You know mm -hmm. why? They're not certified to cut it. You don't right. know. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. You yeah. have to be certified. You don't yeah. want Corian. Why? They don't have the, they're not licensed to cut they it. Make it and sell it. Yeah. They, they won't even be able to buy it, the Corian, unless they're certified. So there's a lot of, when you go into the salespeople, you go into the appliances, you got to really watch the salesperson and who's really mm -hmm. being honest with you and telling you the information that you need as a consumer to make the best decision. Absolutely. It's like the old commercial Absolutely. we had here years ago, an educated consumer is our best customer. And yeah, that's right. That's a New York expression. It was that department store. Hi Sims. Hi Sims. Yeah. <laughs> You're bringing me back to my New York days. So of course, one of the primary design tasks of any kitchen and bath designer is the cabinetry, which is, I think, a full episode, which we'll, you know, do very soon. I'm so glad that Allison has agreed to join us for an episode of From Disaster to Dream Home to talk about cabinetry. Um, Allison, I'm looking forward to speaking with you at length about the many different options for cabinetry, the off-the-shelf at big box stores or semi-custom or custom-built cabinetry. And you mentioned a little while ago about, um, about uh, how other designers that aren't trained in kitchen and baths are starting to do a lot of kitchens. Um, tell us a little bit about your Kitchen and Bath Design Academy. The reason I developed the Kitchen and Bath Design Academy, Kitchen and Bath Design Academy, was because I had taught some classes in a local college, and I really enjoyed it. It was um, something I had discovered that I loved to do, and what I found was being the secretary of the Interior Design Society, I'm very involved with interior designers here on Long Island. And there's so many designers that don't know the differences on what is a framed cabinet, what is a frameless cabinet, what yeah. is inset, what is an inset. What is cherry? Cherry is not a color, cherry is a <laughs> wood. You know, so I could, from talking to other designers, I felt that they needed more education. When I went on to the internet to say, well, where can they learn? I wanna, I'm a designer and I wanna learn more about kitchen products and mm -hmm. kitchen design guidelines, cabinetry, woods, the cuts of woods, where can I do that? And I could not find anything online that was geared towards or even other than the National Kitchen and Bath Association. Mm -hmm. And the National Kitchen and Bath Association is geared towards becoming certified. Their whole yeah. spiel is to become a certified kitchen designer, certified bathroom designer. I am not a certified kitchen or bath designer. Me either. <laughs> no, and I have, I mean, I've had people where they tell me I had a certified designer and she didn't even know what a flush finished end panel was. Right. So. Right. There's the weight that that CKD and CBD hold are 
very much in debate in our industry. And I wanted to give something available to designers mm -hmm. starting out experienced, whatever, the opportunity to learn without having to become certified or taking classes that really don't relate to their particular role in kitchen and bathroom design. Like for instance, some of the, the books that they give you are all about the plumbing and the faith and the Joyce and the this mm -hmm. and that. And I think that that's overkill. And I wanted to give something where there was a resource for designers to go in and learn yeah. about what are the guidelines? Like we talked yeah. about a little bit of the guidelines. Well, what are those guidelines? Mm -hmm. I took NKBA's guidelines and I took only the ones that I use. Mm -hmm. Some of them are, are stupid in my opinion, they're uh -huh. irrelevant. It, adding up the square footage of storage in a cabinet to come up with a, I've never, ever, ever in my 30 years of career, figured out how much square footage a cabinet holds. Uh -huh. I need to know, is that cooking, is that pot that you make lobster sauce in? Exactly. In the exactly. cabinet. Exactly, exactly. yeah. So yeah, I that's great. It. I took a need, I had the programs, I already developed it, and I felt I can, I can really serve my fellow designers by educating them. Mm -hmm. And I thought, doesn't everybody know all this stuff? Don't you know? You know, everybody? that's so interesting because I actually... I haven't as much recently, but um, for many years, there were designers who did whole houses that would call me to do the kitchen or the and the bathroom. And I'm like, I don't know why you don't feel confident doing this. You're doing a gorgeous job throughout this house, but I'm happy to do it because I love doing it. Um, but so I think that there's a real need for what you're uh, creating and making it online. It's accessible and people from, you know, all over can, you know, capitalize on the information. What's the best way for people to contact you or learn more about it? So my contact is my website, which is alisonsolar.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-S-O-L-A-R, like the sun. <laughs> and it's alisonsolar.com. And on my website, you'll see it has a tab for Solara Designs, which uh -huh. is my design portfolio. Right. And then you're going to see KBDA Academy, a tab at the top, and it's going to bring you into... You can purchase courses individually. You can join on a monthly membership. I have a monthly membership where I go in live. We have a private Facebook Facebook group. We I go in live once a month. I give another training. We have question and answer day. I share um, PDFs only into my membership site. So as a member, you get bonuses, but you can purchase a few of the courses like the guidelines for bathroom design and kitchen design. I'm also working on uh, the lighting design, which is so complicated. It's not even fun. Yeah, that, that may have to be its own episode, to be honest. Yeah. And I kind of break it down into simple, like it, it needs to make sense. Bite-sized pieces. And I have a, the one course I do on the cabinetry. I really am very proud of my cabinet course. I'm fabulous. I think. It's well, I'm so excited because that's what we're going to talk to you about. Uh, we're going to, you know, uh, tape that episode very soon, and then we'll have it for everybody. Um, thank you so much for joining me. You are just an absolute wealth of information, and your sharing is just um, delightful. And I want to remind everyone that you can always get all of our episodes on www.fromdisastertodreamhome.com and most of your favorite podcast outlets. Wonderful. It was, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Disaster to Dream Home the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. Each week, we bring you time-tested practices and the latest trends through conversations with top professionals in the building industry. You can find other episodes of From Disaster to Dream Home at EWNPodcastNetwork.com, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and most other major podcast streaming services. Need design help? You can contact us or find out more about our guests at fromdisastertodreamhome.com. Until next time, let us guide and inspire you as you create the home of your dreams.
Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.